Okay, well, perhaps it won't surprise you to hear that I'm starting off with the cat flap, the spat between Theresa May and Ken Clark as to whether it was a cat that prevented the deportation of a, of a Bolivian um, overstayer. And, in fact, that story had been going the rounds for some time. I, I actually wrote about it in June on the IRR website when it, it was um, a sort of shock horror story in the Daily Telegraph and the Daily Mail who for some years now have been running this campaign to get rid of the Human Rights Act. So it started off in the Telegraph, I think, in June. Then it was taken up by the Mail. I wrote the story on the IRR News Service sort of exposing how dishonest it was because I knew the solicitor whose case it was. But obviously, Theresa May, regrettably, doesn't read the IRR News Service. <laughs> um, so she repeated this, this absurd story. And so this week it's the gym. You, those of you who see the Daily Mail will know that on Monday they reported another foreign national offender can't be deported because he goes to the gym. Uh, another travesty of the facts. There was a mail story a few weeks ago. Nigerian rapist can't be deported because of EU judges about how 24-year-old Nigerian, his deportation was stopped because the European court, including shock horror, judges from Bosnia, Albania and Montenegro told the British judges that he could not be deported. And it was only much later in the article that you read that he had committed this offence, yes, which was a horrible offence, it was a rape of a 13-year-old girl, but he was only 15 when he committed the offence, that was nine years ago, and that since then he'd been in young offenders institution, he'd done GCSEs, he'd done A-levels, he'd done a first degree, he'd done a master's, he was working for a local authority, he went to church, he lived with his mum, he was completely rehabilitated. But obviously, the Daily Mail is not going to run a story saying, rehabilitated Nigerian former juvenile rapist avoids deportation, because it doesn't really have the same sort of shock factor. So, behind all of these shock horror stories is a serious attempt by the right of the Tory party to bulldoze international human rights law out of the way to the extent that it interferes with the government's desire to deport foreign national offenders. But um, we have been here before and what I'm going to do is just to trace the, the history of this sort of struggle that's been going on. The MPs like Philip Hollowbone, MP for Kettering, he and Dominic Raab are, the t are two of the real right-wingers who are pushing this, getting all these stories into the Telegraph and the Mail. And what um, Philip Hollowbone says is, we want these nasty people back in their countries of origin. I am not particularly fussed as to whether they are repatriated, deported or removed. I just want them there, not here. So that's the sort of level of debate, get these people out of the country. So 
the first thing I wanted to do is just to look at what happened before the Human Rights Act because the right blames everything on the Human Rights Act. And if you read any of these stories, it's like in the good old days before the Human Rights Act, you know, none of this would have been possible. We would have been able to deport anybody we wanted to deport. So looking at the old rules, which were actually the same since at least 1972, I know because I've got them all at home going back to then, what the rules from 1972 onwards told the Home Office and immigration judges if they wanted to deport either offenders or people who were overstayers, because prior to 1999, overstayers were also subject to deportation. They had to take into account every relevant factor, including age, length of residence in the UK, personal history, character, conduct, employment record, domestic circumstances, the nature of the offence of which the person was convicted, previous criminal record, compassionate circumstances, and any representations received on the person's behalf. So that is a very broad palette of factors to which the, both the Secretary of State and the judges had to have regard pre the Human Rights Act if they wanted to deport either an immigration um, offender, overstep, or a foreign national offender. And in a 1986 case in which I was involved called Back to Sin, which thank goodness the Daily Mail didn't get hold of that case because Back to Sin was, was a Sikh priest come musician who had entered on a two-week work permit back in, I think, about 1980 or something like that. He had just overstayed and overstayed and overstayed, and I was involved as a very junior barrister in his first instance deportation appeal, which we lost, but we lost in such a wonderful way that we were able to win, because the way we lost it is there was a, a picket of the court there were a hundred people outside the court who then came into the court and told the immigration judge, the adjudicator, what a wonderful person this was, what a great value to the community he was. And the adjudicator listened to all of this. He was slightly afraid of these hundred people, so he was very respectful of them. And so in his determination, he said, Obviously, this man is of great value to the community. He's a tremendous asset. He will be much missed. Unfortunately, it's not something I can take into consideration. So we were able to take that sentence up to the tribunal, to the Court of Appeal, and then to the Judicial Committee of the House of Lords, the precursor of the Supreme Court. And the House of Lords said that he was wrong, that in fact, taking into account all relevant circumstances obviously includes taking into account the fact that somebody is an asset to the community. So the point of, of uh, that little story is to demonstrate just the sheer breadth of factors that judges not only could but were obliged to take into account in favour of a foreign national offender or somebody who had overstayed before deciding um, that they should be deported. So then came the Human Rights Act 
which I mean obviously it made a difference it didn't make a, a huge difference it gave the judges a more systematic framework if you like it, in which to analyse and balance the factors for and against deportation, for or against removal. So it gave them that, the framework, it gave, it gave them the jurisprudence of the um, European Court of Human Rights to which they were obliged to have regard. What we were hoping at the time that the Human Rights Act was passed was that the Human Rights Act would be like a floor, that no action of the Secretary of State could sort of go below that floor represented by Article 8, Article 3, etc. A very prescient colleague of mine, uh, Nick Blake, who then became a High Court judge, said at the time what he was concerned about was that it would become a ceiling rather than a floor or rather both a floor and a ceiling in an extremely narrow space, which in fact is really what it's become since the Act came into force. It was quite clear, see Labour, it's quite interesting, Labour was sort of schizophrenic about rights, um, because the Labour administration, it was keen to repatriate human rights, it was keen on human rights, it was keen on women's rights, it was keen on gay rights. And in those areas, particularly gay rights, it did an enormous amount. I mean, it created a route, a legal route, for uh, gay partners to come and be with their partners in the UK, which didn't exist before. So, you know, that was, that was an achievement. But the schizophrenia came from the fact that New Labour were also incredible control freaks. I mean, we, we know this, you all know this. And so you've got to go by the rules, and if you don't go by the rules, you know, you're out. And so they hated the idea of people queue jumping. They hated the idea of undeserving people, you know, being able to use the Human Rights Act. So they, in, in a way, they were almost as bad as the Tories. For them, human rights were for people who abided by the rules, who went back and got entry clearance, who didn't try and overstay and, um, you know, and then rely on human rights to avoid removal, but people who were lawfully in the country and people who were not abusing, quotes, our hospitality by committing offences. So you do get this complete schizophrenia within the Labour administration, which was also shared, I have to say, by the senior judiciary. So I found myself getting absolutely beaten up on two occasions by the senior judiciary on the, point, on the question of Article 8 and the deportation of foreign national criminals on the one hand and the deportation of refused or the removal of refused asylum seekers on the other, in each case where we tried to use Article 8. So the criminal case was one called N. Kenya, which then, unfortunately, a lot of the cases that I was involved in ended up being sort of cited back, not just at me, but at generations of barristers since, where I unfortunately was responsible for creating a, a very bad precedent. And N. Kenya was one of these cases.
which is still being used by the Home Office to say, you know, this is why we should deport people. And it was a tragic case because it was a young man who had come from Kenya, obviously, as a refugee, who had experienced the most appalling, just unbelievable, dreadful things, which we don't need to go into. Anyway, so he came, he'd lost his family, um, and he was in a right old state, not surprisingly, and he committed a horrible offence, a really nasty rape at knife point on Christmas Eve uh, of a stranger, and he got 11 years imprisonment, quite right. And the last two years of his sentence were served at Grandin Underwood, and they did an absolutely amazing job on him, sort of turning him inside out. They have this amazing, really good program, not just one of these tick box, oasis kind of risk assessment things, but they do these cognitive, what's it, but a really, really good program which forces people to really confront who they are, what they've done, why they've done it, etc. So anyway, at the end of that, he really was a changed person. He had a partner and two children in this country. Um, we had a three-day hearing, first instance before the immigration judge, which was the Home Office was saying, oh, we don't believe that he has reformed. We think he'll commit further offences. He's just basically a scumbag and you can't trust a word he says. And then we had these five witnesses from Grendon um, saying, no, actually, you know, he really has changed. And so it was all about that. It was all about, does this man still pose a risk to the public? Um, and we won. And he was released on bail, and it was all very exciting and wonderful. And the Home Office appealed, and of course the tribunal immediately said, of course, uh, what was the adjudicator thinking of? Um, allowing this appeal. There's no way this appeal should have been allowed. I mean, obviously, this man should be deported because of the offence that he's committed. And so um, I went up to the Court of Appeal, and the Court of Appeal basically said, yes, the adjudicator was wrong because although he said on numerous occasions he said the offence is a very serious one. What he didn't do was to take into account, as a separate factor, the seriousness with which the Secretary of State took the offence and the fact that for the Secretary of State it was the sort of offence that meant you should be deported no matter what. Anyway, I was absolutely livid. I mean, it was actually a majority judgment Lord Justice Sedley, who's you know, a very decent judge, actually dissented from the majority and said this is dishonest and basically the tribunal just disagreed with the adjudicator and there's no error of law and the adjudicator's decision should have stood. But he was in a minority. So N. Kenya was the first case where, and it was 2001, so it was just a year after the Human Rights Act came into force, and it was the first case where you could see that the Court of Appeal was sort of leaning over backwards in favour of the Secretary of State to say, well, yes, you know, this is the kind of offence, it's so serious. And if the Secretary of State says that somebody like this should be deported, then that has to be taken very seriously. Not that it has to be followed, but 
has to be taken very seriously. So that was that. And then the other case where I got ambushed was not a foreign national prisoner case, as N was, but a refused asylum seeker. Because the other thing that, as I say, that the administration and the higher courts were worried about is that all these undeserving people like overstayers and refused asylum seekers would rely on the Human Rights Act to stay. Because particularly with refused asylum seekers, if you remember back in 2000, people were waiting for a decision on their asylum claim for three, four, five, six, seven years. So obviously people were not just going to sit and wait at home, they were going to meet people, go out, have fun, hopefully, although it's very difficult when you're in that kind of limbo. And so a lot of asylum seekers did, in the course of waiting for their claim to be determined, actually met people, got married, had kids, etc. You know, life goes on. So my Mr. Mahmood from Pakistan had done just that, had two, a wife and two, British wife, two kids by the time they came to say, right, mate, your time is up, you're off. And he said, well, come on, you know, here I am. I've got a British wife, two kids. I support them here. If you send me home, I will, they will have to go on um, onto income support. You know, what is the point? And so in a previous case, just a few months, like, I think only about two months ago, I had, I had run this precise argument in relation to a, a gay man from Malaysia and said, I mean, obviously what we had, the additional factor we had in that case is that homosexuality being illegal in Malaysia, there was no way he could take his partner back with him. Um, so in that case, called Hashmi, we were saying, come on, you know, it's a waste of time making him go back and then come back and it's illegal there and he'll get into trouble and blah, blah, blah. And the judge said, oh, okay, yes, of course, you know, what's the point? He shouldn't have to go back. So we won that case. So, of course, I trotted along to the Court of Appeal on, I think, about the sort of the 7th of October. I mean, it was, it was days after the Human Rights Act came into force. I got absolutely blasted and a ton of bricks. The point, they said, in answer to my rhetorical question, what is the point of making this man go back? The point is nothing less, Miss Webber, than the integrity of the immigration control, right? Which is, that was what the, the Labour Home Office, that was their big phrase, you know, David Blunkett and all the rest of it, the integrity of the immigration control. So it doesn't matter how many people's lives you mess up, um, it's the integrity of the immigration control because if people can just come here, I mean it does begin to sound a bit like the tablets, you know, people can just come here, claim asylum, get married, have a couple of kids and then say, oh no, you can't send me back, then there's no point in having immigration controls at all. So the case of Mahmoud decided in October 2000 was like a preemptive strike, not quite preemptive, but almost preemptive strike, by the Court of Appeal, coming down really hard on the kind of undeserving migrants 
who wanted to use the Human Rights Act to be allowed to stay. And the test that the Court of Appeal put forward, um, to, laid down rather, for immigration judges to follow was, are there insurmountable obstacles for the UK spouse or partner joining the, the person who was going to be removed in the country of origin? And if you couldn't say that the, there were insurmountable obstacles, then Article 8 didn't apply. What you saw, you began to see a divergence between the case law of Strasbourg, for which the test was not insurmountable obstacles, although that was a phrase that has been used in Strasbourg, but when you look at the jurisprudence, that is not the test. And um, there were cases already like, well, no, actually not in 2000, but 2001 you had the Bulteef case which set out the criteria, um, which is basically, you know, can the, can the, um, the European partner, European resident partner, be reasonably expected to cope with life back in the deportee's home country, which is a much sort of softer, lower threshold than insurmountable obstacles. So you've got this divergence between um, UK case law on Article 8 in the context of overstairs and criminal offenders on the one hand and the jurisprudence of the European Court at Strasbourg on the other. Things got worse. I think the next thing was the 2002 Act and the provisions for removing offending refugees. I, I don't know how familiar you are with Article 33.2, the exception to non-refoulement in the Refugee Convention, which basically says that you can return a refugee to uh, their country of persecution if they have been convicted of a particularly serious crime and are a, represent a danger to the community of the country, the host country. Okay? So that's Article 33. Obviously there is also on top of that Article 3 of the European Convention which prohibits return in any event, no matter how dangerous the person is. Um, but what began to happen uh, as a result of the 2002 Act was that the Home Office started trying to deport more and more people who were usually, but not always, young people who had come in as refugees with their families who had committed offences in the UK and then the government was trying to get rid of them and it was getting around Article 3 by saying you know, that that was historic. You might have feared persecution when you arrived but there's, there's no problem in your country now, which is what they did with in Kenya. But anyway, the provisions of uh, Section 72 of the 2002 Act defined what is a particularly serious <coughs> crime for the purposes of removing protection from people who've been recognised as refugees in the UK. And the way they defined particularly serious crime was anything for which somebody had been sentenced to two years or more imprisonment, or 
which about which you know it's debatable because the, what UNHCR said meant, was meant by a particularly serious crime was things like rape, murder, arson. I mean, really, really serious offences. Anyway, so two years in prison, but then, or um, anything specified by regulations made by the Secretary of State. So basically, it was the kind of Alice in Wonderland situation. You know, I can make anything mean what I want it to mean, says the Secretary of State. So these regulations, the specification of particularly serious crime order, 2004, I think, or 2003, can't remember. Anyway, so yes, you've got genocide, you've got chem chemical warfare and hijacking and theft and criminal damage. So you could literally be convicted of stealing a milk bottle and that would be specified as a, as a particularly serious crime if you were convicted of one of these offences. There was a presumption which was apparently not rebuttable. So you were deemed to have committed a particularly serious crime and there was no way round that. And also, having committed a particularly serious crime, you were deemed to be a danger to the community, although the presumption of dangerousness was rebuttable. But you were deemed to be a dangerous community unless you could prove that you weren't a dangerous community. So incredibly uh, draconian provisions, which the Joint Committee on Human Rights said were arguably unlawful, which had all of us jumping up and down. And again, I seem to have spent my life being roared at and bellowed at by Court of Appeal judges, because I went along, I had a, a little um, drug addict who had held, I mean, literally, he had been convicted of possession with intent to supply on the basis that he was holding his dealer's drugs while his dealer, I don't know, went to the loo or did something else and he was, he was sort of arrested while he was holding his dealer's drugs. That was the basis on which the Crown Court judge had uh, accepted his plea. That was the basis on which he was sentenced. So I go to the Court of Appeal and I say, you know, look, this, you can't say that this is particularly serious. That it must be, that the presumption must be read as a rebuttable presumption. Miss Weber, you, are you trying to tell us that dealing in dangerous drugs is not particularly serious? Absolutely screamed and shouted something. Anyway, so I didn't get anywhere with that one. Um, <laughs> but fortunately, a colleague... See, what I like to think that what I did was I sort of laid the groundwork for colleagues who came afterwards because a colleague then, after, after I'd retired, ran the same argument in a case called EN Serbia, and the Court of Appeal in that case agreed that, first of all, that the, the regulations defining what was a particularly serious crime were absurd. It was ridiculous to equate simple theft or criminal damage with chemical warfare or genocide, and so those regulations were deemed ultra-virus the Act. And so far as the Act was concerned, the Court of Appeal also agreed 
that the presumption of dangerousness had to be read as a rebuttable presumption and not as an irrebuttable one in order to be lawful. So I sort of won the point retrospectively, I suppose. That was the uh, uh, offending refugees. Then, in 2006, we had this foreign prisoners scandal. And that, of course, was um, shock horror. People were being released from prison, having served their sentences, just like British citizens were. You know, They went to prison, served their sentences, came out. But that was a scandal, according to the Daily... Well, actually, according to everybody, because they weren't being considered for deportation. And so we had the resignation of Charles Clark. And in the aftermath of that massive... I mean, it was really a tabloid-generated scandal. It really was. But it had enormous effects in terms of the law. Because immediately after that all happened, you got the immigration rules changing within weeks so as to create a presumption in favour of deportation. It was a rebuttable presumption, but a presumption in favour of deportation for foreign national offenders. Then the following year, you got the mandatory deportation provisions. So anybody who was sentenced to 12 months or more must be deported unless they have either refugee grounds, EU law grounds or human rights grounds to avoid deportation. So you can see now what my colleague was getting at when he said he was worried that the Human Rights Act would be not a, not a floor of rights but a ceiling of rights because that's exactly what's happened in deportation of foreign national uh, criminals as a result of, of all of this, these changes in legislation. And yet, for the, right, um, for the right, even that sort of minimal protection based on international human rights law is too much. And so you got, in the wake of this, me this sort of media frenzy, I mean, you had people, literally you had British citizens, who'd suddenly been swept up because they'd got a criminal record, who were, I mean, I met one, a guy who'd been in prison awaiting deportation for at least two months, because I went along to see a client, and this guy was, was there as well, and he was British, and he was, he was sort of awaiting deportation because they just swept everybody up off the street, more or less, who had a criminal conviction. The client that I was seeing had been in this country since the middle of 1973, which was really unfortunate because it had been here since the middle of 1972, or since the end of 1972, because he was Jamaican, Commonwealth citizen, he would have been exempt from deportation, but he just missed being exempt. In the 1990s, the European Court came out with a lot of jurisprudence um, talking about the deportation of what they called integrated aliens, because there were a lot of young North African lads in Belgium and France who never got citizenship, even if they were born in the country, they didn't get citizenship, so they were still foreign nationals and who were being deported after the commission of criminal offences. And so 
there is some very good dicta by the judges of the European Court. So in the case of Belle Judy and France, Judge Martins said, mere nationality should not constitute an objective and reasonable justification for expelling someone from what may be called his own country. An increasing number of members of member states of the Council of Europe accept the principle that such integrated aliens should be no more liable to expulsion than nationals. And the following year, Judge Shermer's, in another case, Judge Shermer's said he doubted whether modern international law permits a state which has educated children of admitted aliens to expel those children when they become a burden. And that was in Landon Des. So you've got that jurisprudence saying integrated aliens shouldn't really be deported. And you've got the UK suddenly deporting people who've been here for 30, 40 years. And before, I mean, you know, I've, I was doing deportation cases for decades, and it was absolutely unheard of before the, all of this got kicked off in 2006. It was unheard of to deport somebody who'd been in the UK for sort of more than 15, 15 years or so. It just never happened. So there was a complete change, a complete sort of step change in the way deportation of foreign nationals was seen. And it's like since then foreign nationals have really been here on sufferance. And it's not only happened in the UK, there's also been, I think, a regressive tendency in Europe and in the European Court of Human Rights itself. I mean, the case of UNA and the Netherlands, it was a bad case because he'd, he'd only been in the Netherlands since he was 12, so he hadn't you know, spent most of his childhood, and he did commit a lot of very violent offences, so it was a bad case. But in that case, the European Court of Human Rights specifically said that it was okay to deport integrated aliens, people who'd been in the, country, in the host country for a very, very long period of time. And also they, the, the court rejected arguments there that deportation constituted double punishment, said that it was about protecting nationals rather than punishing. So the problem with UNA, although it did, it reminded decision makers about the importance of considering the best interests of children, which has become increasingly important in, in the UK. But it has been seen as a green light to deport at least persistent offenders, no matter how long they've lived in the host state. So to that extent, it represented a bit of a step back. Anyway, so since then, as I say, it's, it's been very difficult, although the jurisprudence from coming from the UK courts is mixed. There was a case called MK, where a guy who'd been here since the age of three, who resisted deportation, had a son born here, no relatives, no connections in Gambia. And um, he was described by the Home Office representative as a foreign criminal. And the tribunal members said, no, he's not a foreign criminal, he's a homegrown criminal, which was really good, because, you know, he's been here since he was three. So that was good. But on the other hand, the case of our RU Bangladesh, which is quite a recent case in the Court of Appeal, you saw there the Court of Appeal again, as in my N. Kenya case, 
bowing to the Secretary of State's definition of, of what constitutes um, a crime which is serious enough to deport somebody. And, I mean, this guy, he committed a very serious crime, but he'd been here for oh, well over 30 years, about 33 years, I think, in Belfast. A very respected member of the community, committed a very serious offence, was an attack on his brother-in-law. He was involved. He was complicit, I think, in it. He was deemed to be low risk, but the tribunal allowed his appeal on the basis of all the ties he'd built up during his 34 years, strong relationships, etc. But the Home Office said his deportation was necessary to deter others and to maintain confidence in the immigration system, and that was an argument which succeeded both in the tribunal and in the. Court of Appeal. So the fact that he himself wouldn't re-offend and wasn't a danger to anyone was again considered unimportant. Uh, what was important was that deportation of foreign criminals is deemed to be in the public interest. So what we've also now seen is quite shocking actually, as a kind of circularity. I'll explain what I mean. In um, 2004, two more new immigration offences were created. The offence of not being able to provide a valid document on arrival in the UK or in an asylum interview. I had written in 1995, I wrote a pamphlet called Crimes of Arrival, which where I was using that phrase sort of metaphorically to describe the treatment of asylum seekers when they arrived in the UK. Imagine my horror when it actually came true in Section 2 of the 2004 Act, which actually created this crime of arrival, crime of arriving in the UK without a valid document, um, which was punishable with two years imprisonment. And we argued that this was in breach of Article 31 of the Refugee Convention, which prohibits penalising refugees for the manner of their entry. Didn't get anywhere with that argument. So people were being sent to prison for that. People were also being sent to prison under Section 35 of the same Act for failing to cooperate with their own removal. This criminalises things like not filling in forms completely and accurately, not making an appointment or attending an interview at your embassy to obtain a travel document. So this is all to do with when the Home Office wants to remove you, you don't have a travel document, you have got to comply, you've got to do what they ask to get a travel document, otherwise you commit an offence. And there have been cases of refused asylum seekers in this kind of revolving door. They're in immigration detention. The Home Office says, OK, we're gonna, we want you to fill in this form to get a travel document. They refuse. They're charged. They're convicted under Section 35. They come out at the end of their sentence, or they don't come out. They're then back in immigration detention, and it goes round again. And a colleague of mine had a case where after three consecutive convictions of um, failure to cooperate, the Home Office then tried to deport this guy 
under the mandatory deportation provisions because by then he's clocked up over 12 months imprisonment. Okay, and so that means that he's eligible for mandatory deportation. That case, the, there was an application for judicial review and the judge expressed the provisional view on the permission application that that was, uh, that repeated prosecution was an abuse but that hasn't been finally decided yet. But it's a kind of uh, how to turn an, an asylum seeker into a criminal and then deport him. So it's sort of completing the circuit in a way. There has been better news in the last three years in terms of family life, um, children's rights, preventing deportation. A series of cases like Chikwamba, Ibi, Kosovo, Huang, where the, the House of Lords and the Supreme Court have uh, said in Chikwamba, I was finally vindicated when the judge actually said, what is the point of making somebody go back to get an entry clearance just so they can come back here? He said, he, he said Kafka would be proud of it, he said. So I, I was really pleased about that. Anyway, so yes, there have been that there have been significant changes in in terms of the way that family life is looked at by the higher courts, which is great. So Chikwamba, you don't have to go back and get entry clearance if you're a refused asylum seeker, or it will be only comparatively rarely, it says. Certainly in cases involving children. And then you've got Huang. Human beings are social animals, they depend on others, the, the famous dictum of Lord Bingham. And then in E.B. Kosovo, Lord Bingham again saying, it will rarely be proportionate to uphold an order for removal of spouse if there's a close and genuine bond with the other spouse. And that spouse can't reasonably be expected to follow the removed spouse to the country of removal or if the effect of the order is to sever a genuine and subsisting relationship between parent and child. So that was important. And then the, recent, the very recent case of ZH Tanzania, in which for the first time the Supreme Court upheld the right of the child, who, yes, OK, was a British citizen, so that's significant, but the child have her parents with her in the UK and therefore defeated the removal of somebody with an appalling immigration history, i.e. her mum, because of the rights of the child. So that was an extremely significant decision, ZH Tanzania, and there's been a very, very good first instance decision yesterday, which takes that argument even further, where the High Court judge is saying that before taking any action, like removing uh, a family, that the Children's Convention requires enormous investigations into the situation both here and in the, the destination country. So there is, I mean the battle lines are really being drawn up. Things are getting better in the courts in terms of Article 8, but at the same time the, the tabloids are absolutely gunning for these cases. And only a very, very small proportion of migrants successfully resist deportation. According to official statistics, there are roughly between 5,000, 5,500 foreign national prisoners deported each year. There's another roughly 20,000 being removed 
for no, having no permission to stay, yet the Daily Telegraph was only able to find 102 successful appeals against removal or deportation on human rights grounds in 2010. So that's a pretty tiny minority. I just want very briefly to carry on to cover very briefly the position of terrorist suspects and removal of British citizenship. So first of all, with terrorist suspects, obviously you got those between 2001 and 2004, you got this internment of foreign terrorist suspects under the Anti-Terrorism Crime Security Act, where if they couldn't be deported, and if the Secretary of State certified that they were suspected international terrorists, they could be detained indefinitely, and for that purpose a derogation was issued to Article 5 of the European Convention. Then when the House of Lords said that was illegal because it discriminated against British terrorists, no, sorry, it discriminated against, it discriminated in the sense that British terrorist suspects couldn't be interned, it, only foreigners, and there was no reason to suspect that foreigners were disproportionately involved in terrorism. So then, having said, we can't deport these guys because they're, the state that they're going back to um, commits torture, suddenly, or within the space of um, a few months, it became perfectly possible to deport them. So all these guys who had been indefinitely detained, then released when the House of Lords said it was illegal, were re-detained, this time for deportation. How could they suddenly be deported? How was it suddenly safe? Well, because the government had had a word with the governments of Algeria, Jordan, Libya, Egypt, Tunisia, who had all said very obligingly, it's okay, we won't touch your guys. You know, as long as you let us get on with torturing everybody else, we, we won't torture your guys. So, um, I mean, I was involved in, in quite a lot of these cases, and the, wit the witness from the Foreign Office, um, who was very civilised, very urbane, I mean, he was perfectly happy to say in evidence, yes, of course these are torturing states, yes, of course we know that, that if we hadn't got these agreements, they would, these guys would definitely be tortured because they are... Um, suspected of terrorist involvement. And yes, we know that Algeria is refusing to have any kind of independent monitoring of these assurances, but we can depend on them, we can rely on their word because they know that it's not worth, you know, because we will withdraw our investment or whatever, whatever. So anyway, these totally dishonest um, memoranda of understanding which I could sort of rant and rave about for years. So terrorist suspects facing deportation, the government sort of gets round Article 3 by these memoranda of understanding. They have no Article 6 rights um, because fair trial rights don't apply in cases involving immigration, so obviously don't apply in cases involving deportation, which means that you've got people being deported to torturing states on allegations which they don't know. Um, one of my clients 
was arrested in 2004 by the police under the Terrorism Act. He was arrested because he had a will pinned up in his kitchen, which was in quite sort of jihadist terms. It was quite sort of, it was quite violent will, in, in the kind of bloodthirsty biblical language, let's say. So he had this will, and he had, or in his house, although he denied, in, in the flat that he shared with others, he denied knowledge. He, there was also a CD-ROM with the sort of Al-Qaeda man. There was no evidence that he'd done anything. There was no evidence that he was planning anything. After four days of questioning, he was released. In 2006, he was arrested again, by this time by the Immigration Service. He was detained for, for two years in Long Latin, awaiting deportation, while his deportation appeal trundled through the system. After being released, we got him out on bail, and for the past three years, he's been on incredibly stringent conditions. He's got an 18-hour curfew, he's got an electronic tag, he can't have a mobile phone, he can't have the internet, he can't have this, he can't have that. He's got lives in a damp basement with his three kids and his wife. You know, he can go out for four hours a day, two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon, on the basis of a will and a CD-ROM. You know, and he's facing deportation to Jordan. And he's been in that situation for five years. The government has been trying for years to qualify Article 3 because they're saying, look, it's ridiculous. Article 3 should not be absolute. We must be able to get rid of terrorists. We must be able to balance the risk of harm to them against the risk of harm to our population of having you know, a terrorist in their midst kind of thing. And the European Court of Human Rights so far has resisted that pressure. So you, you look at the case of Saudi, for example, Saudi and Italy, and the European Court is saying, no, 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 Article 3 is absolute. Right, British citizens, not many people know that there was a very nasty little amendment to legislation in 2004. People can be deprived of their citizenship up until 1981, no, up until 2002 you can be deprived of citizenship for disaffection, disloyalty, trading with the enemy, that kind of stuff. 2002 changed it, but it's, it's sort of very similar, acting against the vital interests of the UK. The difference in 2002 was Prior to that, only naturalised citizens could be deprived of their citizenship. From 2002, it's anybody, any citizen, whether you're a citizen by birth, by naturalisation, by descent, if you have another nationality or if you have the entitlement to another nationality. So if, if you are a dual national or can be a dual national, then you can, you can be... Um, stripped of your citizenship even if you were born here. Then in 2006 the criteria for stripping of your citizenship were made the same as for deportation, i.e. you can have your citizenship removed if it is conducive to the public good, full stop. So the, the threshold for having your citizenship deprived it has gone down and down and down. But the worst thing that's happened is this 
removal of the procedural protection. The British Nationality Act used to say that your citizen, you, you ret retained your citizenship while you appealed. That section was removed by stealth. There's a tiny little section of, of the, it's actually paragraph 4C of the Schedule 2 of the Asylum Immigration Treatment of Claimants Act 2004. Not something where you would expect a significant change to nationality law. Tucked away in that schedule, it says subsection 6 of this act is repealed. So you have no idea what subsection 6 is. You look at subsection 6 and you see that what subsection 6 said was that this doesn't entitle the Secretary of State to deprive somebody of their citizenship while they have an appeal pending. So that protection was removed in 2004. Since then, what's happened is nobody, nobody has been deprived of their citizenship while they've been in the country. What happens is they go abroad, whether for a holiday or whatever, then their citizenship is removed and at the same time, or like the following day or whatever, they're served with an exclusion order. So they can't come back to the UK to appeal against the deprivation of citizenship. So that is, that is absolutely shocking and it's something which sort of doesn't kind of register with people. Finally, what is happening now in Europe? Because um, you've got the Strasbourg Court. About 95% of applications to the Strasbourg Court are rejected without any reasons at all. Um, so although, I mean, Strasbourg is there as a sort of protection, a final court of protection. 95% of applications to Strasbourg are simply rejected not even inadmissible. They don't even reach the stage of inadmissibility. It's just, this does not disclose breach of the convention. The trouble is that the court is drowning in applications. They have a backlog of about 160,000 cases. So the Council of Europe is urgently seeking ways to streamline court procedures and to reduce the backlog. So they had this conference, they've been having these conferences, they had the Interlaken conference, then in April they had this conference in Izmir, the high level conference of the Council of Europe Committee of Ministers, trying to streamline the procedures. And one of the features of the Izmir Declaration um, is that it notes that the court is not an immigration appeals tribunal and should not intervene in asylum and immigration cases except in the most exceptional circumstances. And that ISMA declaration with that clause in it followed a speech given by Ken Clark in which he argued that the domestic courts and parliaments of the member states of the Council of Europe should be given a lot more freedom to interpret and apply the convention in their own way. So I think you can see where I'm going. Britain uh, is the president, takes the presidency of the Council of Europe as from next month. And 
both Theresa May and Ken Clark have said repeatedly that they're going to use the presidency to redraw the relationship between the UK's and the, and the national, the UK's national courts and legislature, and the convention institutions. They, relying on this principle of sub subsidiarity, they are going to try to ensure somehow by raising more procedural obstacles to Strasbourg to make sure that the Strasbourg court only deals with cases raising serious questions of general importance. So, and in that respect, they are at one with human rights advocates in this country who are saying that the UK's national courts need to take more responsibility for delivering human rights. But obviously the motivations of the human rights advocates on the one hand and, and the Tories on the other are completely different because obviously what the Tory agenda is to restrict the reach of human rights for foreign nationals and particularly for foreign national offenders.